If you've got a Bible, we're going to be right where I just read in Ephesians chapter 1. And so open up and make your way to that place. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback one around you. We're going to be on page 976 in the black hardback one. I'm going to constantly be saying, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this. And so it'd be helpful to you if you had a Bible open in front of you. Uh, Have you ever noticed that there are truths in life that are obvious And then there are connected and related, maybe less obvious truths, right? But but they're true. There there are obvious truths, and then there are related, yet less obvious truths. Obvious, and then related, yet less obvious. Let me try to give you some examples. Everybody knows that Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, right? Right? Everybody knows that. That's pretty obvious. What is less obvious is that if you shorten, it's obvious. It is an obvious thing. What is less obvious is if you shorten his name to Neil A. and read it backwards, it spells alien. Right? True? I had to come up with some of these, so they're going to be a stretch. Just hang in there with me. I'm trying to make these. I racked my brain last night. I asked Kira, I asked Haley, I asked Claire. I was like, do you guys have any ideas? And so this is where we came, this is what we, I came up with. So it's not on them, it's on me if they don't make sense. Also, it is obvious to me at least that bananas are, are good for you. I have one almost every single day. What is less obvious is that a banana is actually a berry and a raspberry is not a berry. Do you know that? Yeah, this is what the internet will do for you on a Saturday night when you're just looking for this. <laughs> right? Didn't know these things. Another one, it is obvious that, I mean, based upon wrappers we picked up in here and packages we pick up in here, y'all like mints, you guys like Altoids, you like Lifesavers, those sorts of things. All right, that's obvious. We love those. I like it. What is less obvious is that, like, what we're doing when we're actually enjoying those. We are basically just enjoying our favorite flavor of our own spit. You suck away at that. That's what you're doing. It's gross. (laughs) So that's the best I could do with these obvious and less obvious things, all right? But that idea of things that are obvious and then things that are connected to it that we haven't really thought about before that are less obvious, that is kind of what we have in the text before us this morning because what we have going on is is Paul is in the midst of a, a prayer of Uh, thanksgiving for the church and we analyzed most of the prayer last week but at the end of that prayer he highlights two things that display God's glory and one of them is really really obvious like if you have any background in Christianity even if you're not a believer but you've just studied you've got some understanding of Christianity one of them's pretty obvious but the other one perhaps less so and I'm not just going to go ahead and tell them to you not yet because I want to build specifically I want to build to the second one. But there's an obvious one and there's one that's perhaps less obvious, though no less true. It's just that perhaps we haven't thought through it. We haven't connected the dots for whatever reason. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. We're talking about these two displays of God's glory. One's obvious, one's less obvious, but absolutely true. And it's not less obvious because of the text. It's less obvious because we don't think that way. 
And so let's just jump into it. The first one that is uh, obvious, we'll hit that one first. And it's number one in your notes, you can write this down. God's glory is displayed in Christ. God's glory is displayed in Christ. Now, we've been using that phrase, in Christ, throughout this entire series through Ephesians. And we've primarily been using it to connect with, like, who we are. We are in Christ. We have union with Christ, as as we just sang a few minutes ago. But when I say God's glory is displayed in Christ, like, right now, what I'm talking about is, like, the person and work of Jesus. That God's glory is made manifest, it is made known as we look at, know, read of Jesus, his person and his work. And I think largely, like this is obvious to many of us. If you have any background in Christianity, your mind may think John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. It's obvious. He shows the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it's this display of God's glory that Paul was highlighting here at the end of his prayer. And we hit on some of this last week, but look at it with me. We'll pick it up in verse 18. So Paul's praying, and he prays that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, it's in the church, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he explains his power according, like what it gives some examples, according to the working of his great might, That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so basically, Paul is shouting at his readers. He's trying to get our attention and help us to see the supremacy of Christ over all things. And that that supremacy is a display of the glory of God. So he's supreme over death, right? He's been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and in doing so, he has laid death in its own grave. That it's on the clock. It will not be forever. Death will end when Jesus returns. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus' power and glory, like by saying he's been seated at the right hand of the Father, a position of authority, a position of power. And he's not there just resting. He's there reigning right now. In verse 21, again, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so Jesus is in heaven sitting 
Not to rest, but to reign, but to rule the king of kings, the king of the universe. And he reigns over all these things we just listed, authorities, powers, dominions. He reigns over them right now. Jesus reigns over all of our enemies, all of your enemies, my enemies, right now, already. Now, he gives them some, they're on a leash. He gives them some ability to influence things, but they're on a leash. He reigns over them right now, which is good news for you and I. But verse 22 tells us, and he put all things under his feet. God has already put them under Jesus' feet. And so it is, Jesus' boot is on their throat. They're under him. And there will come a day again when he stomps. And the fulfillment of Genesis 3 happens. And the head of the serpent, the head of evil, is crushed in finality. And so as we think about the supremacy of Christ, let me get personal with some of you, because the brass tacks is this. You and I are going to glorify God one way or another. We absolutely are. We have no choice in this. We will glorify God one way or the other. When Philippians 2 says that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the praise of the Father, it means it. And so you can willingly and joyfully confess that now. Or you can forcibly confess that then. But bow and confess, we all will. We don't have a choice in that. The decision we do have is whether we are going to joyfully bow as a trophy of His grace based upon Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the life He gave for us so that we could be made one with the Father. Are we going to be a trophy of His grace? This is the decision we have now. Or are we going to be a trophy of his justice? But either way, we will be a trophy to the glory of God, either highlighting his grace or highlighting his justice. We don't have an option of whether or not we will glorify God. We don't have an option of whether or not we will bow ultimately. The option we have is how. Willingly in joy or forcibly in subjection. Subjugation. And so that means even the most hardened person in here who might hate God and rail his fist against God, in the end, you too are going to glorify God. One way or the other. And so the person who would rail his fist against God, when you think about the supremacy of the one who, all, all that we've read is your railing fist in front of the one who created the cosmos with a word not pretty pathetic and so this is the supremacy of Christ this is the power of Jesus and God's glory is displayed in Christ okay Colossians 1 he's the image of the invisible God and by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created listen through him and for him. And he is before all things. He's preeminent. 
And all things hold together in Him. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God's glory is displayed in Christ. Verse 22 again, And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to this verse and notice. This verse is not just saying that Jesus is the head of the church. Look at it. It's not, it's not, not just saying that. It says that Jesus is the head over all things. And as such, he has been given to the church. Do you see that? There's a difference. He, he, he is over all all things for the church. Which means with all the, that power and all that authority and all that wisdom, Christ serves as our head and our leader and our savior and our king and our friend. All that power, all that authority toward us who believe over all things for the church. And now look at this. Look at verse 23. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what Paul's talking about when he brings up this word fullness here is he's referencing the Old Testament. As in the Old Testament, the idea of fullness always brought to mind the glory of God filling the temple. And so as Paul is applying it here, he's trying to get across the point that the fullness of God's glory, the visible manifestation of his attributes, is to show forth through the church. That's the reason God has given power toward us who believe. Verse 19. And that's the reason Jesus has been given head as over all things to the church. The reason is because it is through the church that God has chosen to display His glory. And so this is the connected, yet sometimes less obvious truth that we talked about in the beginning. Now, if you have any level of background in the church, it is obvious to you probably that God's glory is displayed in Christ. But what is perhaps less obvious And not because we don't see it clearly in Scripture, but because we don't think this way a lot, is this, and this is number two in your notes. God's glory is displayed in the church. At least it's supposed to be. God's glory is displayed in the church. The church is not a human institution made up by humans. This is God's idea from before the foundation of the earth. God's glory is displayed in the church. And just kind of think through it with me. Like it, when, when you're in school, if you are in school, students you, you, they teach you, you know, hey, if A leads to B and B leads to C, then A what? Leads to C, right? Same thing here. Think through this. If A, God's glory is displayed in Christ... And B, the church, his body, verse 23, is the fullness of him, as it says. 
then see the church is the most visible display of his glory on earth. Say it another way, the church is to be the primary instrument of the glory of Christ on this earth. It is the visible manifestation of his glory. And somebody's like, Joe, you got all that out of that verse? Yeah. And no, I got it out of the whole Bible. I'll give you two, just like how tightly Christ is bound to his church. How much he identifies that they are one. It's all over the scriptures. I'll give you two easy examples. One of them, you probably have even guessed maybe. Acts chapter 9. Saul is persecuting the church. He's doing this because he doesn't believe that Jesus is alive again. He doesn't believe that he rose again. And so he thinks that he's out persecuting deluded Jewish fanatics that thought a dead criminal was the son of God. So he's trying to stamp that craziness out. So he's persecuting the church. But Jesus didn't see it as Paul persecuting the church. When he showed up to Saul, I think I said Paul, he becomes Paul, right? When he shows up to Saul and knocks him off of his horse, what does he say to him? Saul, why are you persecuting, not this group of people over here, not the church, he doesn't mean to use that. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like That's how closely Christ identifies with his church. He says, why are you persecuting me? See, when Christ was on earth, he had a physical body, just like you and I. And now he is resurrected in that body, ascended into heaven in that body. And in that body, he is sat down at the right hand of the Father. But he still has a body on earth. And it's called the church. We are his body. Why are you persecuting me, he says. We are united that closely with Christ. Or you can take Matthew chapter 25. There Jesus says to his people at the final judgment, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And then they asked him when this happened, since you know, Jesus wasn't there, he was in heaven. When did we ever see you in those ways? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The brethren of Jesus. The brethren of Jesus. That's the church, brothers and sisters. We call each other that. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted into the family of God. And so what this means is that if you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. If you love and have affection towards the church, you show love and affection toward Jesus. All right, so the church is his body. It is the physical form of his presence on earth. And so again, if God's glory is displayed in Christ, and if the church is his body, then the church is the most visible display of God's glory on earth. Which means this relatively new, last few decades, idea of I love Jesus, I just don't love the church, The Bible calls you a liar. 
And look what that means. I'm not saying that we need to smile at everything that's going on in the church. Like now we're stepping out of the local church for just a minute. In fact, there are things going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is our affiliation, that I am ashamed of. Big time. And angry about. But regardless of our Barney Fife-esque way of constantly shooting ourselves in the foot where in the face of a forest fire, we get angry because our match collection caught on fire. Regardless of that, this idea that you can love God and not have a relationship with other believers is an unbiblical hatching of your own imagination. It is not biblical. It's not how it works. We are to love the church warts, zits, goiters, and all. And listen to me, not just in some abstract love of Christians in general, but flesh and blood, step on your toes type of people where we get to know them, allow them to know us, and push one another along to faith and good works. It's in this context that we see whether or not we are actually living out in practice the Christianity we profess with our mouths. In other words, it's membership in a local church that is the environment where one demonstrates not an abstract obedience to Jesus and his call to love one another, but where we do it with flesh and bones, where we covenant together and we live it out. And it's in that context that the church is to stand out as a display of God's glory. But how? Like, How do we do that? How do we, as the church, practically display the glory of God? As we together reflect His nature. As we together reflect His character. Like the character of the church is to reflect the character of God. And we are to reflect it not as 300 individuals on an island. Yes, as the church scatters, reflect it. But we are to reflect it as a group of people as well. We are to reflect God's attributes. And we're going to hone in on three in particular. And so I want you to write this down. All right, Get, get your pen. I want you to, I'm going to give you a full sentence and I'm going to make it personal. So I, I want you to write this down. God wants to display His glory through providence as we are together marked by holiness, unity, and love. Characters of God, right? God wants to display His glory through providence, through us, right? All of us. God wants to display His glory through providence as we are together marked by holiness, unity, and love. As we are together marked by holiness, unity, and love. Again, the character of the church is to reflect the character of God. And so we want to be holy because God is holy. We want to be united because God is one. We want to be loving because God is love. And so let's go in that order. Let's talk holiness for a minute. First of all, we are to be holy in the sense of being strange to the world, but special to Christ. 
All right? We are to be strange to the world, but special to God. We are to be pure. We're to fight sin. We're to confess when we fall. We're to repent of it, to turn away and pursue Christ again. This should be a trademark of the church. There should be a difference in our lives as compared to those that do not know Jesus. Like if everybody all looks the same, someone who claims the name of Christ and someone who doesn't name, claim the name, like how do you know the difference? Well, you don't ever go to church either. You don't ever, you know, die to yourself to live for someone else. You're just as selfish as I am. You're just as much a glutton as I am. All right? The church, there should be a distinction. There should be a visible distinction. And this should be common and typical of our lives. Now listen, not in the sense that we're self-righteous, judgmental jerks. Right? Jesus comes after those folks hard. No, not at all. But rather, we are to be a people whose hearts are set on Christ and His glory. Not on ourselves. Not on ourselves and our, our consumeristic, individual, me-centered, like pervading culture that we live in that pushes that down our throats. We're to be different. Our lives are to be different. Different in goals, different in jokes, different in entertainment, different in motivation, different in hopes, our dreams, our aspirations. There's not to be one piece of our life that is divorced or disconnected from Christ. Our lives are not a pie and we have our little God pie. No. Christ is the pie. All of it. And so we're to be holy as God is holy and thus display His glory. And someone's like, I can't do that. I mean, I'm, I'm not. Uh, no, we can't in our own power. That is why I praise God, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. We have resurrection power to live this way. As he goes on and describes what that power is, the first thing, raised Him from the dead. And so let's be marked by holiness and let's be marked by holiness together. Let's not confuse the watching world on, what, on the difference Christ makes in our lives. We should be different. We should be holy. But we also display the glory of God through our unity. Again, together. Through our unity. Just as God is one, so too we are to be one. And not just in name, but in function. And ever increasingly so. In such a way that it shows off the beauty of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that we don't want to just create community in the church that would probably exist anyhow without the gospel of Jesus. And so here's what I mean. And, uh, in your resources, I listed compelling community. Chapter 1, super helpful. I commend it to you. Pages 20 and 22. I'm about to paraphrase it. But what I mean by this idea of not just creating a community of the church that would probably exist anyhow without the gospel of Jesus, what, what we do in the church a lot of times is we divide up people 100% based upon life stage, right? That's what we do. We divide them up based upon life stage. And so, for example, let's say a single mother joins a church. Well, who's naturally going to build friendships with? 
other single moms, right? And so very often we would encourage her to to join a, a small group made up of other single moms. And sure enough, quickly she, you know, integrates in that community and thrives. And we think, awesome. This is so wonderful. She's in community. And to some degree, yeah, it is. There's beautiful things that are happening there. But on the other hand, if we think about it a little bit deeper, all that's occurred is a demographic phenomenon. Not necessarily a gospel phenomenon. Like single moms naturally are going to gravitate to each other regardless of whether or not the gospel is true. Just humanly, we're going to do that. And the community therein is great and it's super helpful. But its existence doesn't say anything about the power of the gospel. It would happen anyhow. Now, I want to make sure you understand. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be with people of similar life experience. All right, It's entirely natural and it can be spiritually beneficial. Not knocking it too much. But what we do need to recognize is that building community purely through natural life stage bonds, if that's all that characterizes the community in a church, then the community ceases to be remarkable to the world around us. It ceases to be any different than anything else. It doesn't show off the glory of Christ to a watching world. It also teaches us to be consumers. Make it about you. Find where you are comfortable. Find where you find other people just like you. And don't get outside of people who aren't like you. Make it about you. And again, this doesn't mean we need to feel guilty whenever we enjoy a friendship that would probably exist even if the gospel were not true. Not, okay, not at all. Praise God for those friendships. Those are good things. But it does mean that we need to additionally think and we need to seek to go beyond just caring about and being close to those who are just like us. We're in the same socioeconomic, vote the same way, living like we need to be very careful about that. It could go in a gazillion different crossings of the way the world would split us up and define us. Okay, as the body of Christ, we should aspire for many relationships and a deep-seated love to exist only because of the gospel. Not because we got everything else in common, but because of the gospel. That's it. Not just, like, let us aim at creating community, not just by similarities, but based upon supernatural connections that would not exist except for God. It's the gospel. That is what binds us. That is why we love one another. This is what would make the world sit up and take notice. Why does this guy care for this guy? Why does this... Students, why do, why, do, why do these kids who go to one high school care about all these other kids who go to a different high school? Why don't they just... Stay with their own high school and fellowship with their own high school. Why would they step outside of that school and care for someone else? Why would 
you know, this jock care about this nerd? Why would this nerd care about this jock? That doesn't make sense. Why do they love one another? Why do they work hard to develop that love for one another? Because of Christ. We do these things because of Christ. And that shows the glory of Jesus. It's not just about, you know, we're all like affinity groups. We're all the same because we have this. No. Let us aspire. I'm not saying to like throw away your group. But let us aspire to something greater than that. I started to hint on this a little bit last week. And then I got sidetracked. In the church, there are weird people. Okay? There always will be weird people. There'll be people who grate on you. Just don't kill. I just have a hard time with that person. But you're still called to love that person. And that's what shows the gospel to be great. Because like in and of myself, I might not love that person. I might totally avoid that person. But the gospel says, no, we are a family. We are a body of Christ. And our commonality is Christ. Not our similarities. And so it should be common in the church that the only thing we have in common is Christ. And we grate on one another. And we get on one another's nerves. Why does this person always do this? Why does this person always smack? Why does this person always show their feet on Facebook? Why does this... Like, all, just... <laughs> things that get on our nerves... Why does this blue-collar lady care for this white-collar lady? Why does this single mom always hanging out with this married family? Why does this Jew love this Gentile? Why does this black man and this white man love each other so much? This is what makes the gospel look great. When our commonality is Christ, not affinity. And so we want to confound the world And show the power of the gospel by loving people that the world would say we shouldn't love one another. That's the unity we want to have. And so that brings us to love, right? That's the third one. So we talk about holiness, talk about unity, let's talk about love. We want to be a church that is marked by love because God is love. And that we show off the glory of Christ as we link arms in covenant with one another and we promise one another that we will lay down our lives for one another and we will be there for one another and we will inconvenience ourselves for one another and we will love each other and we will serve one another and we will not cast one another out when we fail one another but we will forgive one another and we'll work through the difficulty of the situation and we will forgive and we will move forward and we will continue loving we will fully give ourselves to one another for the sake of christ's mission here on this earth and we do this listen not necessarily because the other person deserves it think about your own self what did you do to make god love you Nothing. Nothing. Matter of fact, we sinned against him. We rebelled against him. That's what we did. But when you get that you've been loved, not because you performed to some level, and not because you, you know, kept successfully hidden all your faults and your failures and your weaknesses and your sins, 
And not because you've pleased God, but because He chose to love you despite all that. When you get that, it frees you up to choose to love others freely as well. Just as you've been freely loved. Not because of what they do for you. See, that's where love has gotten like hijacked in the 21st century. Our culture views love completely wrong. We've gotten to this place where we view love as 100% selfish and with a consumeristic mindset. What's in it for me? We think of largely love as purely emotive. And therefore, it can be fallen into and out of, whether that's marriage or just friendships, depending really on how happy the other person makes me. And that's not you loving someone. That's you loving who? Yourself. That's you loving you. So really, we don't love that other person. We love ourselves. Our love for others is conditioned upon what they can do for us. And so if they're not doing enough for us, you know, I just don't love you anymore. Whether that's marriage or friendship. And that is not love. Love is not you make me happy, therefore I love you. Love is, I love you, period. And so love is actually way more of a choice than it is a feeling. Now, there are feelings, right? There absolutely are. But whether in marriage or in friendships, they're going to wax and wane. But love is a choice. Jesus chose to love us and we must choose to love each other even when it doesn't make sense in fact that's when it shows forth the glory of christ the most when it doesn't make sense and we do anyhow we choose to love because we've been loved by god and so we walk with one another In love. A love that is patient. One another. This isn't just a marriage. Like this is written to the church. We all co-opt it and read it in marriage. And that's wonderful and great. Love is all these things. But this particularly is aimed at the church. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so he goes on to talk about, you know, hope and faith and love. Well, hope someday will be satisfied. Faith someday will be not needed because we will be in the presence of the Lord. But love never ends. And so the greatest of these three is love. And if we read the first couple of verses, we would see that the Bible says that no matter what you do, if you don't have love, 
that you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Friends, we have been loved at great cost. It took the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to redeem us back to the Father. And so we, in light of that, should love at great cost to ourselves. Don't make it about me. What does this person do for me? How do I love this person? We talk with our kids sometimes that, just in you know, trying to raise your kids, we talk with them sometimes that when you enter a room, you should not enter a room and be like, I'm here. Everybody love me. Well, people aren't loving me. Well, shoot, I guess I'll go somewhere else, right? Now, we walk into a room and we look around and we say, who's here that I can love? There's one. I'll go love this one, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one. That's how we're to look and live in the church. Who can I love? Not who loves me, not who fills me up, not who satisfies me. That is a consumeristic mindset. That is not a Christian mindset. And so let's battle against our consumerism. Let's battle against our individualism. Let's battle against these things that aren't Christ-like and let's allow the church to display the glory of Christ in being very different from the world. Different in our holiness, different in our unity, and different in our love. This is how the church displays the glory of God. Let's go at it. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that you have bestowed upon us, though we do not deserve it. That you have given to us, though we do not deserve it. We have rebelled and you have loved at great cost. Father, let these things sink deep into our hearts and our souls and cause us to live like you to love one another. And to be unified and to be different and to dis- through those things display your glory as a visible manifestation of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.